this week's Cinematologists is all about sex and the cinema. We interview Beatrice Loiza, a New York Times film critic, about a recent Guardian article on representations of sex and cinema. And we go on to discuss some of the contradictory discourses that underpin conversation about the subject. If you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you could share on your social media networks and even drop us a favorable review on iTunes. And if you want to go one step further, we do have a Patreon account with various tiers of membership where you can get access to a range of further materials. But now on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox. And with me as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hey, Neil. How you doing? You're looking well. Thank you, as are you. And uh, it's good, good podcasting to start, isn't it? Tell <laughs> listeners what, what we can see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely classic. Well, I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm looking at you. In, I mean, normally we do the clean feed and then we've got Zoom on the side. And there's a little bit of lag and it's all a bit clunky. But now we're using Zencaster, which has got inbuilt video. And it's quite... A, Quite a nice high definition shot of you, and your your hair is not looking quite as cavemanish. I'm painting a picture here, you see, with a Rolling Stone T-shirt on. It's all looking good. Yeah, I I, I did look particularly seventies earlier um, <laughs> with my Rolling Stone T-shirt, and uh, yeah, it was particularly kind of Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. But um, <laughs> now it's slightly been tamed for this uh, this recording. But yeah, no, it's nice. It's sunny here which is good. It's not been great weather in Cornwall for a while, so it's nice to have sun and, yeah, start start the week with this taping, which is really exciting. How are you doing? Yeah, same. It's been been nice over the weekend. Managed to get out for a, a longish walk both days, actually. Um, watched a lot of films over the, over the weekend. Managed to do a little bit of editing as well. So, you know, nothing to... I mean, the beginning of term is always kind of like that, two or three weeks leading up to the beginning of term and then two or three weeks into term is probably the busiest time of any academic year, you know, like now and September as well. So but that's just kind of calmed down a little bit. So yeah, it was nice to get a more or less a full weekend of, of chilling out. Cool. Yeah. I've been enjoying your uh, weekly musings on uh, what you've been watching. You seem to be watching quite a lot. It seems to be Seems to be a good active period for your film watching at the minute. Yeah, well, it was just, again, the, the writing has become a way to kind of watch something every day. And it's sort of forced me in a good way into both into both regular watching and, and regular writing. Because it was just, I was thinking about this the other day, about the, there's almost an anxiety about what to fill your cultural life with, if that's not too grandiose a term. And, you know, you're talking about curation all the time and, you know, you're doing a piece on curation. And I think that sense of personal curation is really interesting and sort of reading the, reading that Scorsese piece that again, had everybody on social media going crazy about the idea of curation and, and, you know, using Mubi and having some system of articulation of how you engage with the, the cultural world is is becoming more and more difficult because everything's being fired off at you. So it, it's giving a, a sort of grounding of that a little bit. And it's actually getting, I'm actually enjoying the regular writing process because one of the things with me has always been just starting stuff is, is a nightmare. Once I get into stuff, it's fine. But starting is always the the difficulty. And, and like I'll have maybe even two or three goes at it during the week and just write out kind of thoughts and stuff like that. And I'm still sort of, thinking my way through about how I want to do it. I don't just want it to be a description of the film. And some of them are a bit like that because it's like, I haven't really got a lot to say about the film, but 
you know, you can see that, that some of them get a little bit more attention than others, you know. Which is really nice. You know, you, you, you can sort of see your your interests across the piece, you know, and it certainly feels as you get into it that you are enjoying the process. Yeah, really. Enjoy. And I find that with the, the newsletter as well. Mm. You know, I do. it's always a reminder of, I've got a few days left. So what I did at the weekend was write, okay, what are the things I wanted to read that I might mention? You know, it kind of, it, it, it brings in, yeah it does it helps curate the the things that i think are going to be interesting that i then kind of want to share and that's what it does focus the attention i think which is which yeah. is good so yeah it's nice to nice to see and it's nice to see what we're going to be talking about as well because there's a there's always themes emerging in the uh, yeah in the watching which is good yeah and, and sort of writing a lot about romanian um film because we've got an upcoming episode with a, a film critic from bucharest called andre gorzo which is a really interesting conversation so i've sort of using it as a research week in that sense and then i had a i watched the film that you recommended sorry about that i didn't like it as much as you did but but well, interesting you know, interesting kind years of old yeah sorry yeah, it might be and with today as well. no no say it's 15 years old yeah it's been a long time since i saw it but yeah. um <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't take it personally no 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 i know that mentioning the patreon it's nice we've had a couple couple of other joiners new members uh kathy brennan yeah hello 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 who we mentioned um because she'd, she'd written a, an interesting piece that we'd recommended and then sam lawrence as well i think he's a film student so welcome aboard yeah for a former graduate of mine so sam so nice to uh nice to have both of them on board and we've still got the uh the tiers of of course so if you want to if you want to come and join on the Patreon, it's very competitively priced in terms of our lower tier, which is just two fifty a month, and then we've got other tiers which you get free goodies, well, goodies with the the payments, and yeah, everything that we do with that is fed back into the podcast just to help us with our running costs. So before we get into the main focus of the episode, uh, we both wanted to talk about this film that we'd been sent the screener of called uh, A Nightmare Wakes, and uh, this is. A, a film that you wanted to see because you you know someone you've got a friend who's in it actually um but also i think it was a it's an interesting concept as a sort of grounding for looking at a a, a story in a novel that that is very familiar but uh, an interesting take on it i thought yeah absolutely so yeah so the lead actor in the film is uh, alex wilton regan who is a friend of mine and uh yeah so i sort of knew that, that she was making this film it which is an imagining of Mary Shelley's writing of Frankenstein. So the kind of the the life and psychic factors that feed into her creation of, of Frankenstein. So I knew it was it was being that she was making it. And then I saw, yeah, we got an email from the PR company who represents Shudder, who are the new sort of emerging horror channel. They uh, sort of famously last year produced host uh, for uh, or sort of supported the production of host uh, by Rob Savage, uh, they had a big hit with. So I was interested to see that it had been picked up and thought it'd be something to, to have a look at. And again, kind of, yeah, going back to what we were just sort of saying, it's these things come up. We know we've, we've got a podcast that kind of, it's uh, felt like good to good to see what it was about and uh, and have a watch of it. And uh, yeah, what did you make of, what did you make of this sort of telling, retelling, imagining of Mary Shelley uh, sort of birthing Frankenstein? Well, I think it's one of those where you have to kind of consider the, the the sort of context in what it's being made. It's obviously a low budget production. I was reading some of the notes, and there's definitely a sort of sense of this is female centered, and also kind of like definitely acknowledging in those notes were the sort of diversity of the crew and the cast. Mm. And it's casted across race, isn't it? 
without that kind of being mentioned, as it were. What's what's the phrase that they use these days for that kind of casting? Uh, colorblind casting. Um, that's yeah. right. Sorry, I was looking. I was, I was searching my head for the phrase and I couldn't remember it. And what's interesting about that is that I mean, I think that's an interesting conversation to have about whether whether that works and what does working mean. <laughs> I didn't have a problem with that per se. I think that there's an interesting casting um, distinction between the two leads. So Alex and the male character who plays Shelley, who seem, I mean, I don't know whether I should really say this, but he seems a lot younger, he seemed a lot younger than her. Yeah. And it. I felt that there was kind of a disjuncture between those two, the, the casting in the age sense as much as anything else. And I don't know whether that was actually deliberate. This is just going to sound like because it's your mate, but Alex is the, the the lead and she is the best thing in it. She holds it together. And I think she makes up for some of the, the difficulties, I think, in the... They're not plot holes or anything like that, but but it does go in and out of a kind of hallucinatory, imagined realm and back into the real. And the, especially at the beginning, there's jumps in there's jumps in narrative that require you to kind of figure out what's going on a little bit. And some of them work okay, and other ones I'm like, oh, I'm a bit confused here. And... The strength of the film lies in the ability of you to believe that central performance in her psychosis. That's the best part of it, I think. Because I watched it very soon after a beginning, it did suffer in comparison when it came to cinematography. I found it exceptionally dark. And and I know it was supposed to be dark, so it's set in this old ghostly house kind of thing. It It stretched that boundary between just being spooky and ghostly and just being badly lit, I'm afraid. But I thought there was there was stuff to like in there, and especially the this kind of construction of the inner turmoil and the idea of how the her positioning as a woman writer in this society was kind of wedded to the birth of Frankenstein as the monster, and then the parallels to her husband and how he was treating her. And yeah, it didn't shy away from it in terms of like the representations of sex in, you know, in parallel with the episode, with the episode that we're doing today. But yeah, I mean, again, I think it it lived and died and and definitely lived by the fact that I think that the central performance was strong enough to carry it. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, Pretty much all of that, really. Yeah, I think that it did suffer from one of the very difficult things about low budget production is is always lighting generally you know it's hard to and it particularly gothic atmospheric stuff it's, it's it can be really really hard um one thing i really liked about it which i thought was impressive um in sort of contrast that was the the theme of water and the the way that the, the sort of the water motif and the, you know that sort of the shooting around water was was handled off that was really great because both kind of integral to the biographies of of Shelley and of Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley, but but also obviously there's you know I kept thinking of James Wales Frankenstein, you know, and the very kind of famous scene of uh, of Frankenstein's monster by the water with the child, you know, and that kind of that moment of yeah, just kind of sheer horror in in, in amongst the innocents. It sort of sort of recalled that I thought really nicely. Um, yeah, I I did think that. Uh, I just thought Alex was a class above kind of everyone in the in the cast. I thought they there was a, there was a gulf, you know, and I thought, yeah, she made it really really watchable. And what is those roles are hard, you know, uh, even in even in the other recent um, Mary Shelley film with I think it's Dakota Fanning or Elle Fanning, you know, it's hard to it's hard to do that um, convincingly, you know, um, particularly I think when 
when you're you're doing work that the rest of the cast for the best intention can't quite get up to um but uh, yeah so i thought it was i thought she was brilliant um and really really yeah, really enjoyed watching her her performance now i'm thinking about it it was almost like the cast was a sort of a first feature that that had got a cast full of first actors yeah and she was like a professional at the, in the middle of that it did seem like yeah, that yeah which i think is good for them you know i think that's a great experience for them yeah. um and of course. you know i think that to be honest i think that she's probably a large reason that the film was picked up i think because it's a really interesting story an interesting take but it's certainly held together by that which you know which is great you know it's great for the film it's great for the filmmaker that that they've had that exposure and fair play to shudder for for picking it up and and sort of you know uh, giving it a giving an outing you know because i think often those sort of films are, are definitely lost and it's always hard to tell those stories of how how is how does something come together you know how how does a piece of art come into the world what are the what are the real life factors that, that that kind of play into that? But I thought that was handled as you know quite well. And again, it's you know Alex is very is very convincing in terms of living in the the horror, you know. And, and you sort of read Mary Shelley's Wikipedia even, and it's it's pretty it's a pretty horrific life, um, particularly in terms of motherhood and, um, and and lost children. So not making those obvious overtures to oh I'm going to put this in the you know like trying to keep the writing and the life separate and then letting the filmmaking and her performance kind of show where there's bleed over and I thought was was was, was well handled. But um yeah, I couldn't help thinking of the Percy Shelley character as the, the from Black Adder. You know, the, the, the depictions of Shelley are always always pretty unflattering, yeah. you know? Um yeah. for someone whose poetry was incredible. I've yet to see one where he's not a really annoying kind of yeah. child. And maybe he was really young. I'm not really I didn't really look into that, but and if so that was no. kind of interesting. That there's this there's this kind of petulant you know, woe is me. And we sort of joke, oh, don't we, you know, about, you know, yeah. 18th century poets, you know, as <laughs> this kind of stereotype. And though, you know, yeah. the Byron character was, I thought I enjoyed Byron because I think that the, the actor who played Byron did really well because that's a, you know, he's a particularly odious character. And, that can be a clownish role as well, can't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he was particularly nasty, but also charismatic, you know, so you get, you, you got yeah. with him why there was an attraction to him, even though he was a, despicable person so yeah um yeah. lots to lots to enjoy and well worth checking out i think for uh if, if, if you're into acting definitely yeah so let's uh let's talk about our episode today so this is an episode that that came about um after i contacted the film critic beatrice loiza who is a freelance writer based now in New York and has has had bylines in The Guardian, which is the, the article that we contacted her about, Sight and Sound, LA Review of Books, Reverse Shot and Movie Notebook, and many, many, many more. In fact, she's just got a regular beat in, in on New York Times, which is a big deal. And we talked about that in the longer version of this episode, which will go out on the bonus. So there's a good 50-minute interview where we talk a lot about the pandemic and being a freelance writer but this version that you'll hear on the main show is a, is an edited version. It's about 34 minutes where we talk about this piece that she'd written in The Guardian about representations of sex in cinema. And it kind of came about because of another um, social media storm that came up. When I, I can't remember who the originator of the tweet was, but it was about this idea of whether and why mainstream movies show explicit sex and why they don't. And again, it seemed to come about by this dichotomy of, on the one hand, sex should only be shown if it's in the service of the plot. 
Or, on the other hand, sex should be seen as a kind of thematic or key element of cinema in and of itself. And how does that manifest itself? Why do we watch films in that in that kind of regard? I mean, maybe there's even a third strand, Neil, that is sex shouldn't be shown at all, but we're not kind of Puritans in that, in that sense. So it was interesting how, again, that... I mean, maybe we can talk about that, that idea of why sex per se is that that thing of... Because you don't see what an action sequence is not not talked about in terms of, well, that's not in the service of the plot as much, you know, or a dance sequence in musicals. But sex is kind of like, I think there is a sort of cordon of, well, it, if it's not in there in some way that is contextualized in the narrative and has a kind of re a specific reason for it then it shouldn't it shouldn't kind of be there seems to be one of the discourses um and we talk about that in the interview at length but neil i mean i don't don't know where you want to start with this in terms of kind of the idea of of sex generally uh, or representations of sex and sex in terms of the the industry and where we are with that if you think about going through Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein and where it's now a kind of very political thing in an industrial kind of context? I think it needs unpacking because I think that there's there's two different I think there's two different things at play there. One is the production of films and the the kind of the sexual culture and the kind of the sexual abuse culture, both sort of, you know, in the industry and sort of behind the camera, which I think is um, is obviously really kind of pertinent now, based on everything that's sort of emerging in the last in the last few years. But it feels like that's very much disconnected from what's happening on screen, where there, it feels like there is a real sort of lack of sex um, on screen, and a lot of obviously the what what's coming out in the last few years is historical, be that sort of ten, fifteen years ago, and certainly actresses talking about practices early on in their career where they felt exposed when there was still those kinds of scenes and those kinds of films being made and you know to a much higher degree which you know it, it's hard to argue that in the mainstream is has has complete, almost completely disappeared i think what what was interesting was sort of listening to your interview which is a great interview really enjoyed it um was thinking about and this thinking about the social media thing is that those films which are kind of regarded as the last time sex was really on screen in the mainstream sort of the 90s that's 30 years ago you know and i think it's another reminder of what is happening online is is almost a generational divide where you have a generation of people talking about movies who weren't born then they've never seen sex on screen like showgirls disclosure fatal attraction they just haven't seen it. it it doesn't exist on cinema screens in the way for them that it did for us we're 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 considering it something that's been removed and they're they're considering it something that has always been in the home and is uh, is a legacy um so i think it's it's i think it's always important to to remember that but it also speaks to a long-standing desire by the american control center for want of a better phrase to to keep sex off the screen you know thinking back to the hayes code you know, and where filmmakers found ways to to get around it very imaginatively. But again, yeah, there is this desire to, and of course, the American dichotomy of happy to have no sex on screen, but but, but violence is, is another matter. You can, things can be as violent as possible. So I think that it's it's definitely led me to think about well, what is what is at the root of it, um, and 
what can be done about the conversation. And I thought it was really interesting to hear Beatrice talk about the fact that it, ultimately it comes down to what we talk about a lot, which is, you know, there's been a narrowing of what people think cinema is when there should be an expanding. And people think that anything that doesn't serve the plot or doesn't give you information or doesn't tell you something directly shouldn't it isn't cinema, you know, and a, a non a non non sex version uh, example would be the ending of Bo Travai, you know, you lop off Bo Travai when the plot ends, <laughs> you miss one of the great endings in. Do you know what I mean? Because you think, well, this doesn't serve the plot, but it's all about what Beatrice talks about is po- poetics and psychology of character, and it's just watching a man dance, which has got no relevance. You know what I mean? And so it, it is. I think it's, but it's it's hard to have that conversation in that space. So it was interesting to hear you and you and her sort of get into it because I thought there was so much that came out of it, which was a reminder of actually, yeah, this is this is potentially something which is had something really aesthetically interesting and you know desirous to to the palette for filmmakers at a time when people are trying to narrow everything down but and then we go back to the other thing which is obviously how that is done and who's on screen and who's participating that's that's a that's a conversation which is is vital as well Fantastic. So this is me talking to the film critic Beatrice Loiza, and I started out by asking her whether the recent Twitter debates were the trigger for the article or if it was something she had been working on for a while. Our interest in in sex and cinema, I think, has always been present in my writing, and I I think about those issues constantly, and I'm very interested in erotic cinema in general. But during the pandemic, I think more than ever, the pulse of mainstream film culture, for better or worse, has really migrated to the internet realm, which can be very frustrating given how solipsistic people can be. Uh, And, you know, (laughs) oftentimes you're having conversations with people who just have fundamental misunderstandings of, of things like auteurism, for instance, which is another, you know, big Twitter discourse that happens every yeah, yeah that every, pops up exactly. every few months. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but you know, you know, sometimes the topic du jour, so to speak, on Twitter will get enough traction that a major outlet like the Guardian might go out of its way to solicit a written piece based on that Twitter commotion. And you know, in my case, sure, I had written a tweet. I forget the exact wording of it, but you know, it was weighing in on this black and white idea of sex at cinema and, you know, someone reached out to have me expand on that idea. But, you know, for me, this approach to sex is tied into something that's bothered me about modern, very online cinephilia for, for some time now, you know, this idea that, that a good film is measured based on how well it's able to convey the plot or how efficiently it, it makes yeah. use of, of its time in, in relaying the narrative or a story to, to its audience. So, you know, to me, that's a very capitalistic sure. mindset that, you know, <laughs> even decades ago. Film was productivity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's not particularly new. I mean, even decades ago, this was a concern for some film critics. I mean, I was recently revisiting some of Robin Wood's criticism and he was talking in the piece about the length of, of the movies of, of Jacques Livet who you know, famously employs this sort of extreme duration to his films. And so Woods was railing against this idea that our movies should be 90 minutes long, which is something that 
people still demand nowadays. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, to prefer or deem that the superiority of a work that, you know, adheres to this, these convenient parameters of, of time and, and whatnot. To me, it's an extremely you know, anti-art impulse that's, that's beholden to really, right. you know, ugly bourgeois notions of Wood said, you know, it's catering your film to the nine to five workday to the nuclear family reality, gotcha. which, you know, is maybe it's a bit over the top. But I mean, I think that that criticism actually applies to the way that films are being thought of in terms of, of content. And then also today, there's the TV angle, isn't there? So now there is 13 hours, but it's called TV and, and split up in a certain way. And <laughs> That's right. When a film's two and a half hours yeah. long, that's too long. So it, it just makes it's no sense in that way. It's very contradictory, well. this idea that, you know, binge watching is welcome. And yet, mm. you know, a binge watching of like, I don't know, The Office, which is like this big, it's a show that literally people shape their personalities around here in the US. <laughs> <laughs> And, well, it's a because obviously it comes from the UK. That, yeah. but I don't, I don't know whether we shape our our person. Oh, we admit to shaping our personalities around that, that show. <laughs> no, it's it's like it's so hilarious. The Office. I think that like Disney Plus or one of the big new streamers okay. bought it out. Maybe it's I forget which streamer does, it but it's one of the new ones. And there's like tiers, like subscription tiers, and. It's based on like how much access to the office wow. you're given. But anyways, my <laughs> the office is a fine show. I have myself indulged in it. But <laughs> anyway, to get back to this idea of films adhering to certain parameters, it's, it's not all that surprising that measuring art along yeah. those qualities, because these days people value efficiency and, and streamlined consumption, this idea of two-day delivery guarantees and streaming services themselves, meal replacement shakes. And that all of that, I think, goes hand in hand with an anti-sex in the movies mm. complaining. This idea that a good movie is fat-free, so to speak, and, and stripped down of anything gratuitous, easier to consume, Yeah. Um, I guess, less offensive or more attractive to the greatest amount of people. And, you know, unless we're talking about sex as a means to an end, so like literal making babies, you know, sexuality and, and good sex in particular will always seem yeah. gratuitous or will always be antithetical to this flawed idea of what makes a good movie yeah and that word gratuitous is an interesting one isn't it because it kind of has the double meaning on the one hand it's like there's too much of something and it's over the top because of that and then on the other hand if you relate it representations of sex it could also mean offensive or non-normative you know what i mean or not um because if you think of hollywood hollywood's representations of of sex they're a lot of the time couched in a kind of romantic ideal in terms of the narrative, you know, so there's two people who meet in a certain way and fall in love and all of that kind of ideological stuff. Um, or it's, you know, it's framed in that way. Not that love is you know, ever ideological, <laughs> ideological, but then also, you know, it's, it's shot in a certain way with certain kinds of camera angles and certain music and it's a certain duration and certain things are shown 
more likely the woman's body than the man's body, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's a real kind of, there's a real framing of what we consider gratuitous and what we don't because of that. And I think that ties into that, that idea of what the taboo of what we can see and what we shouldn't be seeing. Definitely. I mean, to me, I was raised Catholic by like my Peruvian mother and, you know, she would always squirm whenever there were sex scenes on, <laughs> in the movies or on television. Yeah. And her argument would always be, what's the point of showing that? Like, why do we need to see that? Like, what is it even adding? Like, it was on, it was her impression that it was just like titillation for titillation's sake. Sure. But if sex is something more than just procreation, then like, what about sex between queer people, which, you know, can never create a baby? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or what about just sex for pleasure anyway? You know, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, or sex for pleasure or just, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, very interested in, in championing or thinking through the implications of sexually gratuitous movies with with an open mind, and especially when they're problematic. I think, you know, for the most part, popular criticism or amateur criticism like likes to put boundaries onto depictions yeah. of sexuality on the screen and and reining it in by certain metrics of of good taste sure. rather than properly analyzing. I think we're coming to terms with what that gratuity is actually saying about about desire and the certain kinds of relationships and, and human dynamics. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, if without sort of going down a hugely psychoanalytical line, there's the whole strand of film film analysis and film theory that talks about this idea of cinema, the pleasures of cinema is is this voyeuristic, scopophilic process where it's based in the the libidinous pleasures of that, you know. So we are seeing something on the screen that we're kind of not supposed to see. And this is where, you know, the idea of sort of voyeurism or fetishism comes from in terms of the, the process of the watching. And if we kind of say that the, the, there are sort of parameters around the sex act itself, then we're, we're putting parameters around what actually is pleasurable in watching per se, you know. So why do we, why do we like watching action cinema or horror it's it's kind of the same thing, except with with sex, it's just the sex that you can see, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I imagine that even diehard comic book movie fans, Marvel fans, have a difficulty wrapping their heads around the erotics of their yeah. relationship to those characters, or admitting in the first place that that the intensity of their fandom, you know, comes from this really deeply erotic place of longing. I mean, I don't know if you've... Um, ever heard about those like marvel marathons it's like <laughs> it's like they have like 48 or however two or three days where they like show the entire collection of all those movies and you know there's kind of like a porn theater like dinginess and sweatiness to that kind of packed theater you know over time i mean <laughs> just yeah, people yeah. sitting in the same place like <laughs> staring at the screen i mean yeah, you know, people come out of those screenings. Uh, I, I've not attended, but I've, I've read accounts of this, like terribly smelly and and exhausted, like emerging from some kind of terrible orgy. <laughs> but you know, it's funny because those movies are also so annoyingly sexless. It's like all those characters, their erotics have been sublimated into like little sure. sweet friendships or like little jokes. You know, even Marvel style feminism is is devoid of sex you know the feminist character from the studio strictly means 
girl power, that a girl is just as powerful as, as a guy, which is very <laughs> simplistic. In terms of the kind of attitudes to sexuality on screen that prompted the piece, would you say that this is a kind of reaction to what's going on in society more broadly, in a way, in terms of, you know, this this sort of maybe more censorious culture or this sense that there are very clear politics behind the image that, that people should adhere to. And now there's kind of battles raging, not just kind of across left and right, but really battle of ideas around representation and what can and can't be shown is quite, quite strictly policed in many ways. Yeah, like this idea that, you know, historically in movies, something like the erotic thriller, all those Sharon Stone movies are just kind of there for the purposes of, I mean, like I have mixed feelings about those movies, but like I understand that looking back on it, it's just like, let's like porn almost for that's allowed for a mainstream audience that they can just like walk into the theater and then see that. But, you know, even even recently on, on TV, I mean, people are always I mean, I also am offended by this, but people are always complaining about bad sex scenes that might be the sort of thing you see on, on Game of Thrones, where it's clearly set up for the purposes of flaunting, you know, women's breasts or, you know, a sex scene that's specifically catered to just give the audience an eyeful without really much in terms of feeling. Mm. And it's a good sex scene is obviously highly subjective. I mean, that goes hand in hand with the idea that, you know, certain things turn people on that might not have any effect on another person or that, you know, someone else might find off-putting or reprehensible. So to an extent to each his own, um, but, you know, I personally, as an arts critic, believe that, you know, film shouldn't shy away from from pushing buttons or, or being boundary pushing, even if it's going to make someone uneasy, though I think oftentimes with, you know, something like Game of Thrones sex scenes, there's not even, there's nothing even complicated behind that. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I can complain about for me, because it's just mm. like, it's so clearly this simplistic servicing of, of, you know, the male gaze, so to speak. Just on that, I think that's really important because on the one hand, sex on screen is handicapped, if that's the right word, by almost a ubiquitous reading of the male gaze, if there's any sex at all. You know, and obviously because it's a a lot of what we quote unquote see as sex on screen is female nudity, as as you pointed out. But the problem with that, then, it, the problem of the assumption that that's what sex on screen always is, catering to the male gaze, means that any, anything that might be more interesting or more uh, difficult or taboo or erotic or even activating, you know, the idea of a female gaze or a queer gaze gets kind of lumped in together. and It makes it difficult to talk about sex being represented more broadly. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm glad that people are even discussing it, because I think it does take a while for any sort of nuance to be achieved in terms of how just like a mainstream public, it's like, is talking about these sorts of things. I mean, I think it's only natural that it kind of starts out from a place of of black and white, especially since, you know, this idea of the idea of like Me Too and like all of a sudden feminism being the sort of everyday part of discourse, I think is, is still very much new. And I don't want to give, you know, well-intentioned people too much flack 
we're not achieving this like sophisticated level of nuance yet. But I think it's, it's a matter of continuing to, to speak about it. And, and I think for many women, you know, such as myself, it's just that including sex and nudity tends to go hand in hand with women being put into uncomfortable situations, you know, being exploited or being treated as lesser artists or, or humans at the price of indulging male genius or, you know, just money-making tactics, this idea that sex sells. Um, you know, I always think back to the example of, of the last tango in Paris with, you know, what happened to Maria Schneider being raped as sort of an artistic whim, you know, invented on the spot by by Brando and the director. But, you know, that's absolutely reprehensible. But at the same time, I think that because of, of that travesty, that the kinds of relation, like fucked up male-female dynamics that we see in that movie, like I don't think that they shouldn't, that they should be off the table. Like I actually quite like that film apart from what I know about its history. So, you know, to me, like these sorts of provocative works, you know, should continue to be made. Um, but it's a matter of holding artists accountable and not letting their their mad genius whims or whatever be more important than than the safety and health of, of whoever's working on the film. Yeah. But after all, it's the collaborative process. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah, and I think I think that that's an interesting kind of separation that needs to be made, doesn't it, in terms of safety and process on the set. You know, and there was that article by by Kira Knightley where she was sort of talking about I'm not, I don't want to do sex scenes with a male director. And I think that that came from a place more of process on set rather than what she looked like on screen after the fact you know what I mean right yeah yeah it's you know it, it really ultimately I think has more to do with the realities of the power dynamics on set as you said you know there's you know this new use of, of intimacy coordinators for instance and you know I obviously like support you know the inclusion of that but, you know, on the other hand, there is this dream of making movies with your friends and, and being respectful and consensual in the way you move forward in the creative process, you know, working together with people you care about. And, you know, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need intimacy coordinators because people would simply be decent and transparent. But because that's not the case, you know, we're now saddled with these mediators that, you know, serve as sort of sex scene insurance and, you know, I completely understand why that's needed to rectify the power imbalances that that very much still do exist. Though I wonder if that's just a crutch or like, will like the industry actually change? Will these people actually change or will there, will there be a future in which intimacy coordinators are no longer needed? It's interesting because it's that that is very much on the one hand about the law and <laughs> economic insurance. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. As much as it is about protecting people, I would say, you know, it's like, okay, we've got this person here, so we're we're covered kind of thing. It's a bit, you know, a little bit like the reaction to COVID in some ways. It's more about covering yourself from a legal standpoint than actually helping people in that in that way. Right. Actually like changing your attitude about yeah, how you exactly. should be working with another person. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a tricky one in terms of that concept of power relations as well, isn't it? Because I think that when we're talking about sex on screen, a lot of the time we're just we come from a place when what we're 
really talking about is heterosex on on the screen and therefore that becomes connected to certain assumptions around power relations right and because the power relations are usually a man over a woman when we're talking about the film industry more broadly you know if you think about Weinstein and and what he did to the actresses and all of that kind of stuff that's a definite kind of power relationships and and then that does tend to translate onto how we see a man and a woman in terms of the representations of sex right so you know the the, the man has the power of that relationship and the woman is passive or subordinate and that you know that that's a kind of historical way that that this has been looked at and i think maybe even having a more adult kind of conversation about how those power relationships are changeable and what i mean by that is yeah when when they are in place in in that way and it's problematic that should be you know called out and all of those kind of things but who's in control who has power when we're talking about sex is a much more gray area than sometimes it's given credit for if that makes sense yeah no i, I definitely think that's the case it's especially perhaps it was more clear cut back in the day this idea of you know men having all the power that the cinema being catered to the, the male gaze but it's it's so complicated nowadays i mean on the one hand we have you know more female film artists queer film artists like people of color making movies that are you know bringing to light new sexual experiences from from a different angle that are very much needed um you know on the other hand it's like sex has migrated to the streaming services and 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 television and porn is its own thing something that you do in the privacy of your own room alone with your laptop i feel like it's not in a sense it's not interwoven with the cinematic experience of like you know the snuff theaters from the 80s and the way that you know, we used to get people really associating going to the theater with like voyeurism and and sharing this weird communal space of sneaking off to the porn theaters and being among a bunch of other people. And, you know, that whole experience has kind of been rendered obsolete. So I mean, it's there's like all these complicated ways in which sex has been like sectioned off in a sense. Because at the same time, like, are these, you know, more feminist or, or more diverse depictions of sex? Are they really, does a mainstream audience really have access to them in the way that the big sexual movies of the 90s were big blockbuster hits? I think that's just really interesting in terms of the idea that that maybe when it comes to film and sex, and maybe why this is all why it kicked off on, on social media, apart from the fact that it's social media, but, you know, <laughs> because... We lack that experience these days where to go to the cinema, like in a big group, and you go and see Basic Instinct or, or Fatal Attraction. or and, and, you know, I listen to the Fatal Attractions podcast, which is really great fun because it takes the good and the bad of that genre and really goes in depth on it. But, yeah, I mean, it's like going to see a sort of big blockbuster movie drama with A-list stars where there's going to be sex in there is kind of a thing of the past in a way. Oh, definitely. And, like, you know... I'm sure that the mid-budget adult drama, as they say, which, you know, no longer exists in the cinemas and is now like on streaming platforms. I mean, it's 
good that that exists in some place, but you know, to an extent, the algorithm sorts out the sorts of people that would be interested in yeah. that. So it's not like it's super popular. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think generally the kinds of, of movies that do make it to the cinemas nowadays, you know, they're the kinds of movies that, that studios deem safe enough to, to invest in. And, you know, this idea that each movie that comes out in theater needs to make an insane amount of money an amount that can only really be achieved by by casting a net over the widest audience possible. And, you know, and trying to cater to this incredibly wide ranging uh, tastes and, and different kinds of people, the product almost necessarily has to be bland. <laughs> it's like if you're painting and then you mix all the paint colors on the palette, you know, the color ultimately comes off as, as gray or brown or, you know, something hideous, which you know, coincidentally, is what most superhero movies look like aesthetically. Not to continue piling on to those movies, but yeah, 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 yeah. a favorite point of <laughs> criticism for me. <laughs> In terms of your article, you point out some really good examples of films, I think, that use sex is the wrong way to phrase it, but, you know, that there are sex scenes in there and they're not necessarily plot-driven but they add something or they're iconic or they create a mood or something happens because the sex is happening on screen and it relates to either the character or, or something aesthetic works. So I don't know, is there are there a couple of, of, of favorites of that that you could you could talk about? I mean, it all comes down to, I guess, what you think a movie is capable mm. of communicating. Um, and if you're of the belief that a movie simply communicates a story or a plot, uh, then you probably won't have an appreciation of what a sex scene can communicate in terms of, of feeling um, and vibes, so to speak. So the way you know a sex scene might shift the tone of a film or provide a kind of relief. I mentioned Miami Vice, which has in my article, which you know has two shower sex scenes. You know, to me, they're just so utterly romantic, and they really contrast with just like the manliness of, of the rest of the film in a way that really drives home that the film's very romantic character, which is sometimes overlooked. Uh, and in terms of character work, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, the idea of no sex for marriage is, is quite silly, and mostly because, you know, when you have sex with someone for the first time, especially when you're trying to have you know, a relationship or trying to get to know them better, you know, everything about the sex act the foreplay, the, the act itself afterwards. I mean, that reveals volumes about the other person, you know, the kind of lover they are, their chemistry. So, I mean, can you really make a, a relationship work if, if you don't enjoy having sex with the other person? And to an extent, I kind of feel that about sex scenes between characters. I mean, there's tons of romantic movies that, you know, don't include sex scenes. And I'm always wondering, like, is it just as good in bed? <laughs> but um, I, I think the sex scene can be a really poetic or really palpable way of expressing a character's state of mind or you know the state of a character's relationship. And in terms of Don't Look Now, I mean, without dialogue or, or words, you all of a sudden really get the sense of where their relationship is at. The fact that they are a couple that probably hasn't had sex in a long time because of this, you know, mutual trauma that they've went through. And there's like a hunger to them doing it for the first time and also a nervousness that I think is, is you know, how else could sure. you 
convey yeah. that. And and you mentioned you mentioned um, showgirls as as well, which I think is a really interesting example of sort of oh, yeah. the idea of the sex scene being like completely over the top in right. in line with the film and and the character. And you know that that film has clearly been written about an awful lot in the. In this <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Showgirls. It's interesting because I distinctly remember when I was younger, uh, like watching MTV or VH1 or something about like worst sex scenes or like mm. crazy sex scenes and like showgirls being a part of that. And like at the time, you know, me kind of laughing about it because it's a ridiculous scene. I mean, the character Nomi, you know, she's having sex with Kyle McLaughlin and she's like flapping in the pool like a fish. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> my appreciation for that film has, has grown since then. And it just like makes complete sense to me. I mean, in, in step with the film's campiness and, you know, Nomi is a character who like repeatedly is, is called out for being like over the top and, and trashy. And like, even in her style of dancing, she's always too much. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it makes sense that like the way she would have sex is also kind of over the top and then too much. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even beyond what it expresses about her character, I think the scene is also like completely hilarious because it, it subverts this idea of, you know, this romantic tryst between them. It's actually just yeah. kind of absurd. Sure. It triggered a thought, I think, when I was watching the other night for the first time in a long time, Saturday Night Fever, because there's this correlation similar, similar kind of way to between sex and dancing and like for for Tony Manero, John Travolta's character, you know, the, the dancing is the intimate thing. The sex mm -hmm. is this kind of misogynist, you know, rough power trip, you know, and it's really interesting how that plays out in, in, in that way. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's true. Speaking of the dancing, I think, you know, there are also immensely erotic films that don't even show sex in any explicit way. And I think it's mm. the wonder of, of cinema to be able to bring out the inherent eroticism of, of certain situations or sure. you know, interactions between people. Phantom Thread is an excellent example of that intensely yeah, erotic yeah, film yeah. that you know doesn't have a single sex scene. Pretty much a lot of old Hollywood movies, you know, Barbara Stanwyck movies are a good example of that. You know, but at the same time, I, I do hate this idea that you know, that that's the more tasteful and dignified um, way of, of showing human eroticism mm. in the movies. You know, once again, we're falling back into this idea of what makes a good or a bad movie um, that sort of stifles uh, the creative impulses. And, you know, to me, explicit game, explicit sex is, is completely fair game too. even like the pornographic mm. kind, you know, I mean, sure. those are worth, you know, thinking through as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate taboo, I think, isn't it? This is because pornography is so available now mm -hmm. that because pornography is so available, when we see sex in mainstream movies, we can't help but know it's simulated, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's pretend. So that ultimate taboo of real sex in mainstream movies is something that that just, it seems impossible to kind of get over in a way. That's right. Um, though it's funny with like a lot of these um, art films that are showing unsimulated sex or that are more bluntly engaging with pornographic images, you know, oftentimes a viewer will look at that and be like, this is kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of, of Kathleen Bayat again and, and Romance X. You know, I think I watched that movie as a teenager 
because I just wanted to be, you know, titillated. Essentially, I was like, oh, like I heard that it's controversial. I remember as a teenager, I was like, okay, but like, why am I kind of bored? <laughs> I mean, I think that film is amazing now, but it's it's interesting that, you know, you expect certain things out of a more pornographic leaning cinema. And oftentimes the difficulty or there's an intentional difficulty to it that subverts, you know, the usual pleasure you'd get from just like the, the porn, the, the types of porn you'll find on Pornhub or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, God, it's funny because it's like, you know, growing up in the 80s as a as a boy, you're kind of like anything that you you manage to see on a you know on a late night night movie is a kind of a bit of excitement for you, you know. Whereas like the, right. the availability of of sex now actually creates a different culture around around sexuality out there, you know, and that little bit of censoriousness that that was around until very recently actually had some kind of positive impact in terms of understanding you know because you had to almost work to understand sexuality a lot harder I think than you do now or, or at least sort of you know now we're presented with images that are you know highly problematic in many different ways and we're ha- and, and young people are having to deal with what that actually means while discovering themselves in many ways yeah it's it's really strange because you know I feel like I mean I have no idea what a younger audience what their experience in terms of how sexuality is being presented on screen is like, but I imagine that it's, it's kind of like separated into like the highly problematic sorts, the like game of Thrones, like whatever is kind of very base and, and male gazy. And then, you know, this new, these new depictions of sexuality by, you know, some of the film filmmakers I listed in my article, you know, Barry Jenkins, um, Isabel Sandoval, also Celine Sciamma, you know, all of these new filmmakers and also, you know, Michaela Cole, sure, like the, sure. oh God, what's the show again? I May Destroy You. I May Destroy You. And like these, you know, other depictions of, you know, that are finally showing what it's like to show consent on screen or like a more realistic depiction of a traumatic sexual encounter that are kind of trying to fill in these blind spots historically of, you know, the trauma of the the female experience or just the wonders of, of, you know, a female, you know, finding her sexuality coming of age, which, you know, are obviously extremely important. And I'm glad these films are being made, but it's like, there's, I feel like there's been very little in between in terms of, of popular films that, you know, are, discussed online for instance that are in between these two poles and and that's kind of why I end my article on you know one day I do hope that woman of color makes a highly problematic sex scene that isn't going to be the sort of of scene that you know people will celebrate because of how well it it represents something or it just is, you know, <laughs> it just is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's hard to work through why it is that way. Um, I hope that there are, are many more sex scenes to come and that, you know, sexuality isn't completely squashed from, from the cinematic experience. Um, but I have hope. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, listen, Beatrice, thanks so much for, for taking the time out for a second time uh, to do this with me. I really appreciate <laughs> That's it. That's right. No problem. Thank you. Thank you.
So thank you so much to Beatrice for taping. In fact, thank you doubly for taping twice because we had to retape after discovering that it didn't record the first time around. A complete podcaster's nightmare there. So very accommodating uh, she was in terms of, of taping a second time. So thanks for that. Um, Neil, so, you know, a lot of interesting stuff that I kind of wanted to go further on, you know, in many ways. And obviously that's what our conversations are, are for. And I just wondered, you know, what you thought about some of the the key elements that came around that. I mean, we didn't really touch upon the representations, particularly, I think, in art house cinema of queer or gay sex, which is quite prevalent and is, interestingly to me, and, and again, maybe correct me if you think I'm wrong here, there is a sort of positive sex positivity around representations of gay and queer sex. And, and and don't get me wrong, I'm fully aware and acknowledging when saying that, that there are problematic elements to that. Like say, for example, blue is the warmest color. So here is a representation of, of gay sexuality where it's a male director in charge and it, and it brings up all of those power dynamics that we talked about in the interview and discussions of what that actually means. But the interesting thing to me is I think that because there is an assumption when we're problematizing sex on screen, what we're really problematizing is heterosex on the screen. And what we're really problematizing is the implied viewer being male and therefore the way that something is cut and shot that is directed towards the, the male gaze or the implied male viewer. And therefore, is it really difficult now for the conversation to be positive about straight sexuality in a way that it is a lot easier to talk about gay sexuality because of the kind of era of sexual politics that we're in. And and I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying, is that actually a kind of outcome of the sort of expectations or the the, the need to kind of address those historical power, power dynamics that, that have taken place off screen and, and on screen? Yes, I, I think... Um... Yeah, I think I think that is part of it. It's kind of what I was trying to allude to. I think that it's hard to it's hard to divorce production context from what's on screen, particularly around sex. I think because sex a sex scene is re- as a place where audiences know, even if they don't acknowledge it, they know how that was shot, and it's hard to dis- suspend disbelief. I think you know, you know how films are made generally enough to know that when two people are intimate in a room, there's at least 10 people standing around you know i think i think i think that you, you kind of carry that which adds a frisson you know certainly in terms of you know one of the things that's very transgressive about it is that 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 part of it you know that it is a it is a simulation as talked about but it's there for it's there for an effect as well as you know driving the plot and obviously historically it's been represented on screen as sort of white and i would say it's white heterosexual coupling which is probably the most problematic because I think that, you know, something like if Beale Street could talk, you know, has one of the, the great modern love scenes, which is both pertinent to the plot, but also, you know, but it's, it's a representation of black bodies in loving embrace that is, didn't get any kind of controversy or because, you know, it, it felt, and Barry Jenkins is obviously regarded as a filmmaker who's very empathetic and, and kind of considerate to his cast and things like that. So, but, but still white, sort of heterosexual coupling is is kind of tied in with that the age old problem really of, of of who watches and who makes it but isn't doesn't that 
then curtail the possibility of conversation about this? Because then, so say, for example, you t- you give that example there, but let, let's say there is a straight sex scene that that you and I are watching as straight straight men, and, w- and we know that there was an intermissive coordinator there and, and the actors have all said it was done brilliantly, you know what I mean? And, and so there's no problem off screen and we're just looking at that that's on screen. Do you not feel that, that say, for example, the it's very difficult and maybe even more difficult for us as men to be able to, to articulate without it being just automatically assumed as creepy or whatever because of our age or whatever you want to say, you know, that we could like discuss and say, yeah, I find that sexually attractive. Because the implication is what we're finding sexually attractive is tied to a male gaziness that is always problematic in this day and age. You know what I mean? And I can't stop, you know, feeling sexually attracted to a certain image. That just that just is what it is. So therefore, that's something that I have to now in this day and age, in this context, like keep quiet about. And it's not that I want to, especially want to talk about it. I mean, we're talking about it today. You know, I don't want to go on Twitter and say, ooh, I find that really horny or anything like that. But that's seen as positive. If you're not a white straight man, I think it's it's kind of positive to claim a sort of sex positivity. And there isn't a place for that to happen now for white straight men. And I'm, again, it's re- and I'm conscious of people listening to this and sort of taking it as, well, you're just feeling like you're the victim now. And it's not like that. I'm just, it's just interesting to me that, is that where where we are and we have to wait for a kind of a different place when it comes to or a you know a, a further positive world where where these things can be can be talked about in a different way yeah i think unfortunately kind of in terms of a, in terms of public space i think that's just that is just that is the way it is and what's in, what's been interesting is is preparing for this episode yesterday i read an interview with kate winslet talking about ammonite um, the new Francis Lee film about um, the um, archaeologist, and um, there's a lesbian sort of uh, love story and sex scene in the in the middle of that between Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan, and it was really fascinating to read her interview talking about the things that Francis Lee was accused of, which was, you know, there's no evidence that the woman in this story, Mary something, was had a lesbian love her, but she wasn't married, she didn't have any. There's no record of heterosexual, so he you know, looked at her life story and kind of, you know... Projected that onto it. Projected that it she might have, you know, um, and wrote this story and got backlash for, you know, doing what people have done with um, gay characters, making them straight for, you know, decades. But also she was talking about how the interviews are focused on the sex scene, how they've talked about it, you know, in, in ways that are so reminiscent of how people have talked to actresses about or written about sex scenes. You know, it's not there is both the things you're talking about but there's also there's not a there's not a there's not a nuanced enlightened way of talking about sex on screen that suddenly applies to to queer stories i remember when moonlight came out and and brett Ellis was kind of you know yeah. moaning about <laughs> yeah. there was no sex in it and I, and then i watched it and i was like are you kidding me there's no intercourse but there's certainly a sex scene and there's yeah. certainly sex all throughout it you know so these limited ideas of what sex on screen is or how we talk about it is this we don't live in an enlightened age that suddenly people are talking about portrait of lady on fire in different ways they were talking about bound 20 years ago like it's 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 sex on screen that does it and yes i completely agree that it's great that people of different um 
communities have those representations that they can stand behind and and sort of and and have the same open vocal desirous relationship with the screen that we've taken for granted for you know but it doesn't mean that there's a i don't i don't see in the main a really enlightened conversation about it which again reminds me actually yeah that there is a there's a deeper problem here when we're talking about sex on screen which is actually talking about it and yeah, 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 yeah. and actually saying what is it doing and why do we like it and why why is it such a core part why is sexual tension if not sex a core part of cinema you know um, and then you you so shared and sort of mentioned them um, that other article you know about everybody's beautiful but nobody's horny and yeah it's like, yeah yeah so this is in the bloodknife.com yeah you can't remove it it's part of the experience and it will be displaced and viewers of color and queer viewers for decades have had to displace their eroticism and attraction to different parts of the screen and different characters and different ways of looking and it's everyone has to kind of do that now because it's you know this is which i think is 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 more telling than than anything else. Yeah, and I I think it relates a little bit to that that sense of, you know, the viewing of sex on screen now has been relegated to the to the bedroom with the laptop and not just in a pornographic sense, but you know, we we were talking about that idea of you don't it's very rare now you go to the cinema together, you know, or with a partner or in a group. I mean, well, in the last year we know that, but generally and and see a major A-lister in a film where there is going to be gratuitous in inverted commas sex yes there's still nudity you know and that that occurs which is an interesting thing to separate out i think but it means then that we don't have that that sense of conversation as you're saying but also i think it it makes it more and more difficult to even kind of admit that we are going because we want to be sexually aroused i mean it's the it's the elephant in the room i think of this whole conversation and maybe i didn't get that into that it's difficult to you know talk with somebody you don't really know that well about it, especially you know somebody of the opposite sex and you're oh you know anybody at all really and, and sort of think how can we convey that idea of yes i find this sexually interesting and what that then says about <laughs> you or you know what I mean? Or, or why you think that? What is it about that? Is it simply because you fancy the person or is there something that's going on in the way that something is shot that arouses you? And that in itself being not a illicit or pornographic response. It's just the fact that that is part of the pleasures of cinema. And, you know, the, the, then you get into that correlation with with psychoanalysis and say, oh, we go for the pleasures of action. We go for the pleasures of of horror and we go for the, all the emotional pleasures that cinema gives us. And is that related somehow in a Freudian way to our sexual drives? And it's really difficult to kind of get to a place where you can admit that and then use that as the driver of what is cinema. Yeah. Well, it's one of the pleasures of life, isn't it? You know, like <laughs> looking at nice things, um, you know, and kind of and taking yeah. pleasure in it. Um, yes, not that, yes. Not that people are things, but you know what I mean? Like, I think that... There's this idea that you are you switch off your natural desire when you enter the 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 theatre, you know, and it's like, well, I'm scared in real life, and I go into the cinema for a particularly controlled, scary experience, you know, and I'm sad in real life, so I go into the cinema for a particularly controlled, humorous experience, and guess what, you know, I have a libido, thankfully, in life, and. I, I I want a controlled experience in the cinema, which 
which recognizes and acknowledges that. And, and I, I don't think that negates all the other the stuff that's problematic about it. But I, I, I'd like I'd like to be trusted to to have an experience that is positive. And I mean that in the, not in a kind of not seeing bad things on screen, but a positive emotional experience with something and understand the context in which it is it is delivered. And I just I, 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 I find it sad that that's not part of, the, you know, the menu um, so, so often, particularly in that cinema space. You know, um, I've had very awkward moments in the cinema with friends mainly, you know, like male friends, you know, where it's like, particularly when we were younger and we'd go and watch something because like you're like, and that's kind of thrilling as well to be like, am I the only one feeling this? Um, it's it's like everything. Am I the only one scared? Am I, why am I the only one laughing? You know, there's something about that communal experience and understanding what you like in that setting. Yeah. And yeah, that's, an, that's a really interesting point. And maybe it leads me on to kind of like the, the question of really whether we're talking about this, the right terminology when we're discussing what sex on cinema, sex in the cinema or sexuality on screen, how it's represented. And are we, should we be really saying that what's what's missing is sensuality rather than sexuality? Because like, say, for example, you know, we talked a lot there in the interview about the sexlessness of of the, the comic book movies, which are the obviously the biggest you know, in cinema, kind of economically, you know, culturally right now. And it's interesting, like, you know, you will see there's always conversations about how the women superheroes are dressed compared to the men and, and what have you. So there's still a selling of sex in that sense. And it is about almost a kind of Playboy magazine attitude still approach to, oh, yeah, we're going to sex up these these women and they're going to be hot, but also kicking ass at the same time. So that that fulfills our feminist quota. Mm. But yet the charisma and the kind of the idea of real longing and desire and real kind of sexuality. I mean, in that article, it says there's just there's no fucking in these movies. You know what I mean? Like, and it's and it's so true. There's no even sort of suggestion of that. And and a, a kind of real it's like with the Wonder Woman that people talk about, oh, what's his name? Um Chris Pine and Gal Gadot and oh, their chemistry. You see, yeah, their chemistry is fine, but it's brother and sister stuff. Really, you know what I mean? It's not it's not anything more than that. And it's com- it's played for kind of comedy stuff as well, you know? And anything that's romantically implied is is much more about, you know, the wider, oh, they're gonna get together and live together happily ever after type stuff, you know, rather than this the really fundamental set of sensuality, really, you know? So it's interesting yeah. how when we're talking about sex, we're talking about specific yeah, ideological constructions of what we really what we really mean in relationship to cinema and the, the machine of of commercialism and how it uses sex. Yeah, I think that you know it is important to yeah to kind of to to acknowledge that you know that we're not talking about necessarily you know world cinema as a and I don't mean that in a ter- in a derogatory term in terms of like the cinemas of the world that are probably more progressive but, and certainly kind of independent film or, or whatever that is you know. Um, but it, again, as we kind of come back to a lot of the time, like there is that it's still the dominant space and it still dictates what people consider a film is um, and what what cinema is. And it feels jarring that it's not there. It, it does, you know, and it, you know, and the increase of other kinds of story, which I thought was really interesting. The point that, that sort of Beatrice made is that the increase of other types of storytellers in that space, even if it's at the 
currently the lower end. It's, you know, are, are they going to be expected to conform to the very narrow idea of what relationships are and what representations are in that space? And that's troubling because, again, it's about how are you going to address a, de- a century's worth of erasure um, in that in 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 that area? You know, unless you give people the freedom to to make the films that that they want to make, which are fully indicative of 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 experiences and just you know acknowledge that it's part of life it's it's strange that there's so much death and there's no sex like you can't those sort of questions hang in the air don't they like you know how how's the world going to survive why save the world if no one's having sex to keep the species going you might as well let whatever the the bejeweled glove wonders name is do you know what i mean just let him let him take it because no one's no one's having sex anyway so nothing's going to happen Let's just, you know, or, or I mean, again, it, it doesn't. It, to me, you know, somebody who who doesn't have any kids and doesn't isn't going to have any kids is is like, yeah, well, but we still want to save the world because we can have some pleasure in sex. That's true. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean after after procreation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. <laughs> it's know, like when, if we're going to be alive, we might as well enjoy. That's it. That's true. You know, and that and the end of Avengers should be, shouldn't it be? The whole planet, the planet's been saved. Everyone should be getting down, like just because it would be a huge release, but. And the, the costume stuff comes into that, is it? Because it, it, it's a little reminder that it's 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 pushed that thing off screen. You know, like it's we are we are white heterosexual men looking, and we look in, we like what we like, you know, and we are massively overserved both in terms of what we get to see on screen and the way it's framed, you know, and that's hopefully changing. And hopefully, as Beatrice said, that yeah, yeah, there'll be a time when every group who goes to the cinema gets to say the same thing. But that's a long way off. Um, there's a lot of films to be made in that time but i think there's certainly there's certainly pleasures to be had you know as there has been for other audiences you know for and again i come back to to jenkins you know just spending a lot of time with those films again recently and both moonlight and and beale street are incredibly sexy and incredibly beautiful and if i'm not necessarily quote unquote aroused because it's not my sexual preference i'm still really in the sensuality of it. I'm really in the moment. I can really feel the the electricity and I can really feel the attraction. And that is exciting as a viewer, you know, to feel that intimacy and that that love and that kind of sexual that way of sh- of you using sex to show to show love, um, you know, is it's just exhilarating. And I you know, so I, I also don't agree that that it comes down to serving my my needs when it comes to talking about sex on screen. I'm, I'm talking about representations of sex which tap into what is great about sex and what we love about sex and what's intimate and vital about sex. And I don't think you necessarily need, which is why, you know, orcs could have sex and it would be fine. <laughs> That's To be fair, it's one of the underrated things about Avatar, I think. The alien sex scene in Avatar is, uh, you know, it's one of the best things about it, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, not hard, though. Well, it's not hard, but that's what I mean. There's not a but not a, not a great bar to leap over yeah. with that. Um, no pun, sorry. sorry yeah. For the- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, having said all of that, I think what we'll do is on the bonus, we'll try to talk about what a good what makes a good sex scene and some sex scenes that we would point you towards if that's <laughs> if we're able to say that, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about you know this idea of living in a. I, I wanted to talk a bit and get your take on living on in um in like a schizophrenic culture, because I mentioned that to Beatrice and this idea on the one hand, we have total availability of everything sexually, a click away. And on the other hand, 
we're we're living under these shifting rules as to what is acceptable and we're supposed to know where where the boundaries are and i think that's an interesting an interesting problem that we have i think in the digital age but um so that the this conversation will continue on the uh on the patreon so if you want to continue listening then please head over there and 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 listen to that uh neil been great to talk to you on this thanks for uh being so open and honest well you know let's see if Let's see if uh, I regret that. Um, <laughs> no, but I think that that's in. Uh, yeah, when when you sort of floated this episode, I thought it was a really good thing to to have a discussion about. It was great to have Beatrice on. Um, you know, really smart, really interesting uh, writer. And yeah, I think it, you know it was one of those things. It was like, yeah, we we kind of need to talk about this if we're gonna if we're gonna live up to our our ethos of, of what the podcast is about. So I'm really excited, and I'm glad. Yeah, glad you put it together. Um, and yeah, hopefully I won't be cancelled for my orc news. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're quite big enough to, to have, you know, splash head like podcasters uh, kind of debase themselves in sexual orgy of conversation. You yeah, know, it's not going to it's not going to happen, is it really? Um, but yeah, so we hope you enjoyed that. Um, any any comments or anything you want to say to us about it, please get in touch on the usual channels on social media or you can email us and uh, tell us what your opinions are on, on this on this subject. But until next time, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.